Well, if you're uh, visiting Canterbury Gardens today, I'm one of the other pastors here. My name's uh, Nathan, and I have the privilege of continuing our series in Abraham in the book of Genesis. We've been working for the last four weeks looking at uh, from Genesis 12 onwards. We've been really considering uh, the life and call of Abraham. And this morning we're we're up to Genesis uh, chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, please just uh, put your finger in Genesis 18. And this part of the story is some 24 years into the journey of Abraham's walk with God. He initially received his call at the age of 75 and And this morning we'll be looking at his life at the age of uh, 99. So 24 long years have passed. 24 years since God had spoken to Abraham and gave him this promise that we see behind me here. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise that God made made to Abraham. And this is a a foundation or a, a cornerstone to understanding Abraham's life. Because this is God's sovereign plan and God's purposes and promises being revealed through the life of this family. Yes, it is for sure a story of Abraham's faith. But it's a far greater story of of God's faithfulness. Because as we read through the life of Abraham, you will see his faith wavers. You'll see his faith triumphs. And isn't that the story of all of us as we place our faith in Christ? As we walk this Christian life? At times our faith wavers, at times our faith doubts. And we need to be redirected to the promises of God. And this is the thing we learn as we we go through this. As I've said, the, the foundation to understanding Abraham and the foundation to understanding many things in God's word is that God uses his promises. He uses this form of revelation, what we know as a covenant, to unify his dealings with his people. So I thought I'd just take some time this morning just to restate the the foundational principles of this particular covenant, because I think it's important. We've heard these things over the past four weeks, but now I think it's a good time to, to combine the things together as we move through into Genesis 18. So firstly, covenants, these covenants particularly we're talking about are divine covenants where God is the initiator. We read in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 particularly about the promises he gave to Abraham that God swore by himself. He swore an oath because he could swear by no one greater because it's impossible for God to lie. So he swore by himself. 
And this is not the only divine covenant that God gives throughout Scripture. He gives one to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in Jeremiah 31, he gives a divine covenant relating to the new covenant, which is fulfilled in Christ. So biblical covenants here are, are an attempt to trace God's program throughout history. He does this through his eternal covenants with mankind. These are the promises God has obligated himself to. Now, I think that's a really key thing to understand when we talk about the promises of God. God, because of his character, obligates himself to his promises. Because it's impossible for God to lie. So when God says something, it's going to come about. And that's tremendous encouragement to us, is it not? When God says he loves you unconditionally, he loves you unconditionally. When God says he will never forsake you, leave you, or depart from you, that is true. It's based on his character, based on who he is. So these are the promises that God has obligated himself to. In effect, God is under contract. Based on his promises, he gives his people. Have you ever thought about that? Because God is a covenant-keeping God, a promise-keeping God, he's under contract. And his contracts, as we will discover, are unconditional. Which displays his mercy and his grace. Here's another definition of a covenant which I think is really helpful. Because with, there are two types of major covenants in the Bible. There's the unconditional covenant, which is what the Abrahamic covenant is. And there's conditional covenants. And this fellow by the name of Dwight Pentecost, who's now gone to glory. I had the privilege many years ago, Julian and I, to, to be ministered to by this, this fellow. And it was interesting. He was a, a prophet at Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, he continued to lecture at Dallas Theological Seminary up to the age of 99. And I could just see him, and he had this amazing thing. About every five or ten minutes, he did a great big drawback. <laughs> Well, that. I think it was his way of keeping people awake. <laughs> but he, he was, it was tremendous, um, it just his depth and love for the Lord. And I, I know this is really quite humorous because after about 90, they couldn't officially pay for Dwight's services at the seminary. So he used to get a dollar a year. He didn't care. He just wanted to minister God's word. And he did that till he died at the age of 99. And this is what he says about covenants. A divine covenant is a sovereign disposition of God whereby he establishes an unconditional or declarative compact with man, obligating himself in grace by the formula, I will. To bring to pass of himself definite blessings for the covenanted ones. 
So that's the unconditional covenant. This is what we're talking about in Abraham. When you read through these first three verses of Abraham, of Genesis chapter 12, what's the thing that stands out there? God's purpose. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed through you. I will make of you a great nation unconditional nature of God's promises. And there's also a conditional divine covenant, a proposal of God where he promises in a conditional or a mutual compact, okay, an agreement between two parties is a mutual compact with man by the formula, I will if you will. See the difference? A condition is when the word if is in there. To grant special blessings to a man provided that he fulfills perfectly certain conditions and to execute definite punishment in case of failure. Hence the Mosaic Covenant, the law, what was given to the people at Sinai was a conditional covenant. If you do this, I will bless you in this way. But God's promises to Abraham are unconditional and unilateral is another way of putting it as opposed to a conditional contract, which is bilateral. You know, in the unconditional contract, we, we see uh, the terms of this one, particularly for Abraham. Actually, I'll, let's go back a bit. I want to explain to you a conditional contract. We all have conditional contracts. Who here has a cell phone? Okay. You have a conditional contract, correct? You have a plan. You pay certain money for that plan, and in, in the condition of that is that if you pay your money, then you'll get the services provided. Right? You'll get X amount of phone calls, X amount of texts, X amount of data. If you go over your data, what happens? Emma Potts, you'd understand this. What happens? When you go over your data, there's a new condition imposed upon you. It normally burns a hole in your pocket, especially if you're overseas. You don't realize the costs that are associated. That's a conditional contract. Same with those of you who own a home. You have a mortgage normally. If you're blessed to have a mortgage, you have a mortgage. And you have a conditional contract with the bank. And what happens if you fail to pay your mortgage? The bank comes and gets your house. That's conditions, right? You know those things that on your phone contract that you never read? The terms and conditions. They are conditions to your contract. So that is a conditional contract. Now an unconditional contract is a little different. So if mum and dad decide to give you a phone, and they put no boundaries on that phone whatsoever. It is an absolute gift. You don't have to worry about data. You don't have to worry about calls. You don't have to worry about texting and over, over ensuring all those things. And mum and dad just keep on emptying their pockets. They don't ever come to you and say, hey, stop it. That's an unconditional contract. And by the way, that's really unwise. Parents. That's really unwise. 
It's like giving an unlimited e-tag account, right? So that's the way contracts are working. But God's contract with Abraham is unconditional and it's unilateral. See, in chapter 12 of Genesis, we read these things, that there were three terms to this contract. There were going to be personal blessings, national blessings of seed and land, and international blessings. And we, we went through Genesis 15 not so long ago where we saw what the ratification of a contract required. And this also for Abraham was unconditional in nature. So what's the ratification process? We'll go back to our phone contract. What happens with your phone contract? What do you do to ratify the contract between you and that person, the phone company? You sign the piece of paper, right? You sign it. And you say, yeah, I agree to these terms and conditions. You initial the bottom of the five pages of terms and conditions and you sign the thing and you say, yeah, that's how I've ratified the, the contract between you and I. If you're married, how do we ratify our marriage contract? Generally by a ring, right? In our culture, it's generally by a wedding ring. We, we give and exchange rings to say this is a symbol of the promises I've made to you in marriage. Look at another one. Let's go to Ruth chapter 4. If you've got your Bible, just quickly turn over to Ruth chapter 4. We'll give you a, an example of a ratification process of a, a covenant with Boaz and, uh, and Ruth. See what happened here in Ruth chapter 4. You, you know the story. Boaz wants to redeem Ruth, but he's not first in line. So he goes to the, the nearest redeemer and says, Hey, could you please redeem her? Her family has died. Her land is here. Please redeem her. You had the first rights. And by the way, there is a widow attached to this and he refuses to redeem. The first redeemer says, I can't because it's going to upset my current inheritance. And, and, and then this is what happens, uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 7. Now this was the cast up. Oh, then the redeemer, verse 6, then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, as he speaks to Boaz, for yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, to confirm a contract, to confirm what was going on here, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So you become a one-legged shoe person. So you took off your sandal, you gave it to the other person, and said, this is ratifying the covenant this is the promise I've made. This is a symbol between you and I. You've got the left sandal. I've got the right sandal. May we always remember every time we get a stone on our foot that we have a contract. Okay? Simple thing. Salt is another one that's used through the Old Testament. But as we read in um, Genesis 15, God used another form of ratification. And this form of ratification was the blood ratification. Remember, cut the animals in half cut the animals in half, laid them out there. It's known as a blood ratification. It was a common practice among the Chaldeans through this time. Normally, both parties would walk through and say, this is a serious contract obligation. If we break it, someone's going to die, just like these animals have been separated and parted. 
What happened in Genesis 15? Abraham was put into a deep sleep. God alone passed through. See, Abraham in no way was part or equal in this covenant. God was binding himself by the most solemn of blood covenants to fulfill the unconditional promises. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you personal blessing. And through all you, through all your blessing, through all your inheritance, all your offspring, the, the nations of the earth will be blessed. So to understand the life of Abraham, to understand everything that we read about Abraham, we need to understand that the covenant is the cornerstone. Yeah, sure, it's the story of Abraham's faith. But the story is greater than that. It's of God's faithfulness. It's a story about God's faithfulness to his promises. God indeed is a God under contract. Now let's pick up the story. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. As I mentioned, some 24 years have passed since this original promise had been given. And there's still an issue, right? Abraham does not have a child. He does not have offspring from Sarah's womb. As promised by God in Genesis 12. Yes, 13 years earlier, they took the, the, the issue into their own hands. And Ishmael was conceived and born. So let's pick up the story. Verse 18, we'll just read the first uh, eight verses here. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, that's Abraham, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be bought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while I ate. This is the sixth time. In the short account from Genesis chapter 12 to now, that God has appeared or spoken with Abraham. Go back in your Bibles, I'll just show you where they are. This is a wonderful thing. Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abraham, gave him the promise. Genesis 12, 7, 
Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. Reiterate the promise about seed and offspring. Genesis 13 verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, walk through the land. He reaffirmed the promise. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and reward. Your reward shall be very great. Then Abraham laments, well, I don't have any children. God reaffirms his promise. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Abram, and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Lord appears, what does he do? Reaffirms his promise. Reaffirms his promise. And then in 18, we've just read, and now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now, this is an editorial note. Notice that. This is an editorial note by Moses. Moses knows it's the Lord. Does Abraham know it's the Lord? No. Because you see that in the very next verse. Because Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. He had no idea. He thought they were just three men. Sure, he is courteous. And he bows and says to him, O Lord, not O Lord as in sovereign God, but O Lord as in just general master. It was a, a name or a title of, of just a general person. Okay, here? It's not referring to God Almighty. So Abraham did not know. It's an true note that Moses places in here for us. It becomes obvious as we read through 18 that that Abraham does get it. He knows it's the Lord that's before him. But he doesn't at this time. Now the place they're meeting is by the Oaks of Mamre, which is in Hebron. Abraham had been here before. This is the place where Abraham built his third altar to the Lord. If you go back to uh, Genesis 13, verse 18 after the the second meeting with the Lord and the Lord had promised um, offspring, reaffirmed his promise, Abraham moved his tent and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So this is a place of worship for Abraham. And he settled there quite often, actually. This is the third time we we have this designation of of this particular place. And I I think the reason he settles there is because it's a place of worship. He's built an altar. He wants to worship the Lord God Almighty. There's a place of worship and of rest. You know, we don't get to do this very often just to sit outside our tents in the sun, do we? Wait for some visitors to come along to show hospitality. Abraham was in a blessed place. We hear hear earlier in the story, he is wealthy beyond all means. The personal blessings are there. 
even when he fouls up in faithlessness by going off to Egypt and, and, and lying about who Sarah is, he returns with great wealth. How would that sounded to the original audience who read this? How would that sounded to the, um, the people of Israel as they've just come out of the land and, and this story has been given to Moses and, and Moses has communicated to them what God has spoken to him on Mount Sinai about their history, about their patriarchs. It would twig in their mind, oh, God is faithful to his promises just like he was faithful to Abraham. He personally blessed Abraham and we came out of Egypt with great wealth also even though we were oppressed. You see, it's interesting, I think, to try and get a timeline here. We said there's six visits by the Lord to Abraham over these chapters. That's over a 24-year period. It seems between chapters 17 and 18, they're within a couple of months of one another. All right, so the start of chapter 17 is in his 99th year. And then the Lord visits him again at the start of chapter 18. And then by chapter 21, the Lord visits Sarah as she gives birth to Isaac. Normally it takes nine months for a birth to happen, right? So go back nine months. And then you've got the three-month window between 99 and 99 and a third. So he visits him twice in a little bit, which is interesting. And there's something here that really speaks to me deeply. And I've, I've already mentioned that every time God comes to see Abraham, he reaffirms his promise. Why? Because Abraham needs reaffirmation. He needs his eyes to be fixed on who his God is. Remember, unlike you and I, Abraham did not have the Spirit of God dwelling within him. He required these visitations to enable him to see with the eye of faith what was to be promised to him. If you're a believer in Christ, we are in a really privileged position because we have God's Spirit dwelling within us that convicts us and encourages us and, and shows us God's promises through his word. It's really interesting, isn't it? Back in 17 verse 1 in, the, in this in this dual appearance. Seventeen one. What does what does God say to him? The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, "I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless." This is interesting. God Almighty. Does anyone know what the the uh, Hebrew word for God Almighty is? If you grew up in the eighties, you'd know. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. I won't sing the rest. I don't want to be in your choir. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, El Shaddai means God Almighty. In some translations, you've set the word Almighty there, right? This is the way God names himself for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. By the time we get to Moses, where he's at the burning bush, and he, Moses says, who shall I say is sending me? Then he says, tell him it's the I am. It's Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God. But here we have 
El Shaddai, God Almighty or God of the mountains would be a better translation. Not that he dwells in the mountains, but that he is the creator of the mountains. It's El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. It's really interesting. This name of God is used also one other significant place in the Old Testament. Can you guess where that might be? Didn't think you'd know. I didn't know until the other day. It's in Job. The book of Job. The book of trials. The book of persecution. 31 times God is referred to as the Almighty. The El Shaddai. For a man who is desperately, desperately under persecution. We read God reveals himself to him by saying, I am the Almighty. Put your eyes up. Look up. Look at the promises I have given you. So here, in chapter 18, we see this visitation. Abraham doesn't know who they are at this point in time. But he goes and prepares a meal. He becomes very hospitable. And he didn't prepare a small meal. I think if you went back and looked at the, uh, the volume of the, the, uh, the raw materials here, you have three visitors, you have Abraham and Sarah. That's a huge meal. He's overabundant with his blessing towards his visitors overabundant towards his blessing to his visitors let's hope next week we're overabundant with lamb but this is it shows the generosity and heart of Abraham let's read again verses uh, 9 through to 15 so now we have the visitors speaking they said to him where is Sarah your wife and he said She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my, my Lord, that's Abraham, is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. He said, that's the Lord. Nah, you did laugh. See, here we start to get an indication of who these visitors are. For instance, 
Had anyone told the visitors what Sarah's name was? I don't see anywhere in the text that that was pronounced by Abraham. Not to mention that this was a very intimate name that God had just previously given him in the previous chapter. Remember, she changed from Sarai to Sarah. Abraham, the Lord said to Abraham, this is what your names will now mean. She will be a princess. No one knew that information except for the Lord and Abraham and Sarah. So we have a divine moment here. And then the Lord says, I'm going to return next year and you're going to have a child. And <laughs> yeah, this is an amazing thing, isn't it? Because we see Sarah's response is one of laughter. Now this is not a laughter with joy and, 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 and enthusiasm and, and, and great celebration. This is a laughter of mocking and scorn and disbelief and doubt. I think on this one, I'm with Sarah. I doubt. Because yes, as uh, Sarah so eloquently puts it, she says, I'm worn out. And my husband's not much better. He's old. He's nine years older than I am. And he's worn out too. How can this pleasure occur? Now the word pleasure here is an incredible word that we don't see often in the Old Testament. And it it describes something that is rare. An exclusive luxury not available to most people. And that's what she's saying, this exclusive luxury of bearing a child, of, of, of being a mother. It's gone. I'm past motherhood. I'm 90 years old. Two-thirds of my life is gone. I like the way Chuck Swindoll paraphrases this particular portion with this dialogue about Sarah. He says this. Sarah's saying, look, I'm no spring chicken. I'm more like a dying hen. And he's no Italian stallion. Everything hurts. And what doesn't hurt doesn't work. That's the picture we're getting here. This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. So she laughs. She not only laughs, she lies about laughter. You get that? I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, she did. Do you see the act of God's grace and mercy even in that? You go down a little bit of track into Ananias Sapphira, and if you lie to the Lord, lie to the Holy Spirit, it's instant death, right? Sarah has lied. And there's grace. Because God is faithful to his promise, even though man is faithless and shows great doubt. And we have the central thing here as the Lord confronts Abram. And he says these simple things. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard 
for the Lord. Sarah's response is not an unusual thing. I think many of us in this room, we doubt frequently. We doubt the promises of God in our own life. We inwardly laugh when we hear the truth of Scripture, when we're reminded by these truths from others within the believing family. But we doubt. You see, we we lose sight of our God. Many times our God is just too small in our thinking. Or we're too self-centered in our desires. Two sides of the same coin, right? God is too small in our thinking because we're too self-centered in our desires. Our concept and view of God and, and His sovereign grace is small. We fail to see the depth and the width and the height of God's love towards us. And that stirs doubts doubts in our heart and soul. We try to fix the problems by our own accord. Sarah and Abraham had previously tried to do this with with the barrenness, right? Here, have my female servant. Here, sire a son through Hagar. That will fulfill God's promises. No. God's on the contract. Unconditional. You will have a son. See, I think sometimes we tend to forget that nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, is impossible for God. That's the lesson here. You think about the nation that's just come out of Egypt as they read this, as they're moving towards the promised land, and they're reminded that nothing is impossible for God. He is his shield and their strength. He was the same for Abraham. He will be the same for the nation as they move into the promised land. And he'll be the same for you and I as we place our faith and trust in Christ. His promises are irrevocable and they are truth to our souls. Let's think a little bit just in, in final closing here. I want to take you through to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to leave this with you. So I think this is tremendous. This is how we can wrestle with, with a doubting heart and a doubting soul. Let's face it, we all do doubt, right? We all are like Sarah. We all have questions about how God is going to, to move and act. I just want to leave you with these two thoughts out of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 1. For me, probably my most favorite scripture in all of scripture. I know you shouldn't have favorite scriptures because all scripture is inspired by God, right? So the whole lot's fantastic. But this one's particularly good. (laughs) For me, anyway. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just marinate on that a little bit. What does that mean? There is no condemnation for those who who are in Christ Jesus. It means if you've 
are in Christ Jesus, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, that your sin is not accounted to you. Hallelujah. That means the wrath of God is satisfied. Hallelujah. That means that your eternity is secure. Hallelujah. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to the the back end of Romans chapter 8. I'll start at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Salvation is dealt with. And listen to this next phrase, this next paragraph. What then shall we say about these things? What shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see that wonderful bookend in Romans 8? No condemnation, no separation. The God of Abraham and his unconditional promises to him in the midst of Sarah's doubt would fulfill his promises in the promised seed of Isaac. That promised seed of Isaac would go through to Jacob, would go through to David, would go through to Christ, who would bless all nations and enable you and I to move from our doubt to increasing our faith as we understand there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And there is no separation. If you want to be less doubtful, Focus on these truths. Focus on these things. In Christ, there's no condemnation and there's no separation. Praise be to Him. Thanks, Mr. Tim.